0: So I want to talk this morning about some dramatic change. You guys understand the concept of, of uh, the big fish in a small pond, and then a uh, then small fish in a big pond. Okay, you guys kind of gather that a little bit. That whole concept that we have. Well, I grew up uh, playing baseball, and uh, I was I was one of those kids that played baseball all year round, and uh, I was part of every league. Uh, that you can think of uh, surrounded by the sport. I was a decently good hitter. I was an even better uh, catcher. And so I, I spent a lot, a lot of time uh, playing some baseball. And so, when uh, in sixth grade, my parents decided to put me into a private Christian school, a very small. Uh, private Christian school, uh, to which even middle scores can play in high school sports. And so I actually, my seventh grade year, uh, made the baseball team, and I played. I actually, actually was the starting catcher on the varsity baseball team of this uh, small school. And, uh, and so did pretty well. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, uh, but, and I actually played through my ninth grade year, uh, and then I was actually one of the captains of the team, and it was, it was a good time. I was one of the better players on the team. Uh, And then after ninth grade, we decided uh, for academic reasons that I would move to the big, larger high school. Um, And so moved over to there and uh, tried out for baseball. And I was not that good. Um, (laughs) And so I, I moved over and I was the backup catcher on the JV team. Like that's that's where I was on this whole thing and I so I went through uh, went through my sophomore year playing backup catcher it wasn't that good I barely ever played and by the end of the year, uh, my baseball career was over. And uh, it, it wasn't, that, wasn't that great. Now, I mean, this is classic uh, big fish, small pond type thing. I mean, it's where everything is quite understandable. You know everybody. Everything in the small pond made sense uh, to me. And I could relate with the small pond because I was a small-time baseball player, okay? so uh, and, and to a certain extent, I was a little bit prideful in my very small pond. Uh, and there, there were smaller fish, so to speak, There were smaller fish that were weaker, more unskilled than I was, and so. uh, But now in comparison, I really wasn't that great of a baseball player. I really in in comparison to but in comparison to them, the people who were with me at this small little Christian school, I was awesome. Like I I was I was pretty incredible. Uh, And so this is a little bit. Uh, of how when we, when we make this transition from the Old Testament into the New Testament, as we're doing in this, this idea of the whole story, uh, which is the series that we're working through in the entire year of 2016, we're making this shift into the New Testament from the Old Testament. And it comes with this really big mindset uh, mindset that we have to mind shift that we have to have, because when we're looking at Old Testament characters, it's easy for us to compare ourselves to them. It's a little bit of the big fish, small pond mindset because when we're looking at these characters, we're thinking to ourselves, you know what? I'm not that bad compared to that guy, right? When you you look at like David or Solomon or if you look at Samson or somebody like that and you're like, I've never killed anybody. I'm better than that guy, right? I don't sin as much as that guy. And so in comparison to some Old Testament figures, I'm doing pretty well for myself. Like, I'm not that promiscuous. I'm not that violent. I'm not, you know... um, In comparison, I'm a pretty good guy. Now, when we get to the New Testament, things begin to shift and change uh, because of who we're looking at, who is the center of the story. Because when we get to the New Testament, we have to make a focus change to Jesus. We have to compare ourselves now to the main hero of the story which is the Son of God. So he doesn't think like we do. He doesn't act like we do. And he certainly never sinned like we do. And so the comparison battle shifts. It's almost like we are a small fish who gets thrown into a big pond. So the centerpiece of the story is Jesus. And this is a huge change. Now, we don't need to get discouraged by this because... We want to talk about Jesus. I mean, Jesus actually is the hero of the entire story, not just the Old, not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament as well. Uh, And so it's pretty exciting. I'm really excited that in the back half of the year, we pretty much get the focus on Jesus most of the time. And in this whole thing, I really love working through the whole Bible like this um, because it allows us to read some stories in the scripture that maybe are a little bit more obscure and we don't get to visit them very much on a yearly basis okay so we're going to be looking at this scripture passage in Luke chapter two. So, if you got a Bible, uh, Luke chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, we want to gift you with a Bible. It's really important that we get the Word of God into your hands. Uh, so, if you, when you're when you're leaving today, we have copies of the scripture that we'd love to put in your hands. Otherwise, we can put the, you can get it on your phone, the YouVersion app. Uh, you can look under live events, uh, and my notes will be in there, so you can easily find the scripture passage. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but here's the deal: it's one of my favorite passages in the scripture because it's a little bit obscure in Luke chapter two and the reason why it's a little obscure is because usually it gets dwarfed by the entire Christmas passage, which is Luke 1 and 2. This is at the end. We're going to look at Luke 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 41 through 52. And so we're going to be looking at that passage. Now, normally throughout the year, you guys hear several sermons, possibly several sermons in Luke chapter 1 and 2, because that's the Christmas narrative. That's the birth narrative. And then right after that, in chapter 3 that we'll be visiting next week, that's Jesus' baptism. So normally pastors skip over this text because it's a little bit obscure, but I want to hit it this morning. Now, I'm going to make a big assumption, and it's a little bit of a risky assumption. My assumption is is that you guys already know a little bit, if not all, of the Christmas story. So, you know, last week we talked about John the Baptist, who's going to prepare the way for Jesus, and this week I going to talk about Jesus' adolescence. So we're actually going to make this assumption that you kind of know the Christmas story, because we preach about it every year, but if you don't, let me just give you a couple key facts, just so that you got the context down, okay? So you have Jesus, who is the Son of God, he's the promised Messiah to, to save his people from his sins. He was promised to come, he was conceived miraculously through the work of God in a virgin named Mary who lived in a small town of Nazareth in Israel. Now all the Christmas things are churning in your brain, okay? So Mary is engaged to a man named Joseph, who at first was pretty apprehensive about this whole deal. Uh, but when God reveals the plan to, to Joseph about what was that, what was going on, he obeys and adopts the child. After After Jesus is born, Joseph adopts the child into his family and raises him just as if he was his own. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem to both, to both fulfill prophecy and because he was of the royal line of David. He was of the kingly line, even though both Mary and Joseph were very poor. Now, a few years after, um, after this, they avoid uh, some wrath of Herod. They go to Egypt for a little while. Uh, Joseph and Mary then return to their hometown of Nazareth, which, where Jesus grows up in relative obscurity. Uh, there's not a whole lot from the time that Jesus was born to when Jesus shows up on the scene and is baptized in Luke chapter six, or Luke chapter three. There is one small story of Jesus's adolescence, and that's what we're going to be focusing on today. So it's it's a fun it's a fun little story. But here's what, so here's what I want to accomplish today. If you're a note taker, here's what I want to accomplish. I want to walk through this small story, uh, and and just because I think it's fun and exciting. I mean, I, just, I think it's interesting. So we're going to walk through it a little piece by piece. The second thing I want to do is I want to enjoy a very big, deep theological concept that we have to grow in as a church, that we have to know and really dive into. Pretty important theological concept that you and I both have to get. Okay? And then lastly, I want to enter into kind of a metaphor. Uh, I want to fit us into this story so that we can apply it. Okay? So, that's the three things I want to do. I want to walk through the story, enjoy this like kind of dive deep into a theological concept, and then I want to see how we fit inside of the story. So, if you're there, Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Uh, Now, Luke, this guy named Luke, it's named after the guy who wrote this book. Uh, He is not a disciple of Christ when Jesus was walking around the earth he was not with Jesus however he was a christian who became a believer much soon after the resurrection uh, most people think that he was a physician uh, and during so he would have been been a christian in the first couple years of the church and he did a great thing he wrote both luke and acts so in your bible luke and acts are actually one big book basically in two volumes uh, and john for whatever reason they put john right in the middle but luke and acts are basically the same book in two volumes uh, uh, and uh, and so he records uh, the length of the gospel story and the history of the church. And how he does this is he goes around, since he wasn't there when, when it all happened, uh, it, he went around and asked people and did kind of first-person interviews. So we can know that he could pro- he probably sat down with Jesus' mother, Mary, and asked her a ton of questions, interview style, to get all the, of these facts. And this is one of the stories that she would have told to him regarding Jesus' adolescence. Okay, so uh, chapter 2, verse 41. Say, I'm there if you're there. Awesome, good. Read along with me. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. When he, meaning Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group. They went went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, "'Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress.' And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Okay. So you have this story. And it's just a brief picture into Jesus' growing up, right? So you have Joseph and Mary. Very devout Jews. We know that they were pretty devout because they followed every little letter of the law when when Jesus was born. We see this in the first couple chapters. And so they would have done everything according to uh, to the customs of the land. So every year, they would have left Nazareth to go and travel probably with a caravan of probably their entire village of Nazareth. They would have gone to Jerusalem uh, and uh, and, and celebrated uh, the Passover. Um, So here's the deal, though. I hope you understand this. The town of Nazareth is a very small town. I mean, we're talking about maybe a couple hundred people, not much bigger than this church. So the people would have known each other pretty well. I mean, only a few families making up this village. So they would have known each other fairly well. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal for Jesus to be with another family, friends, cousins, that kind of thing. Um, and so, so you have this, this big thing called Passover. Passover is the largest thing, biggest thing on the calendar for a New Testament Jew. I mean, that's what they would have looked forward to all year and they would have had like massive traditions that they would have followed every single year. So every year, Jesus would have gone on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem with his parents and his whole town. And just like you and I have like big time Christmas traditions that you do every single year and you gather with your family and you do the same things every year and you eat the same food every year, think that way but in the area of uh, of Passover. Okay? So, Passover, if you're not familiar with that term, let me explain it to you. Passover uh, was, uh, was the celebration and remembrance of when the people of Israel were let go of, of, from slavery from Egypt. Uh, see, Moses, their leader, came and by uh, the supernatural act of God, made plagues come upon the people of Egypt, ten of them to be exact. And they were all pretty nasty, but the last one was the worst, where, where God said, I'm going to kill the firstborn son of every single home, except if you have the blood of a spotless lamb spread across the doorposts of your house. And so if you took the, the blood of a spotless lamb and put it on the doorpost of your house, then the, the angel of death would literally pass over your house and nothing would happen to your firstborn son. So we have this idea of... Passover. So it's the celebration and remembrance of that God saved the firstborn sons of Israel. It also is the celebration that God uh, God like sanctioned their uh, release from slavery to go back uh, to their homeland uh, in Israel. Okay, So during the celebration of Passover as a whole week long, uh, Jerusalem, which all of this would have happened where the temple was, uh, Jerusalem would have swelled three and four times in population uh, during this week. So there's not a whole lot of places for people to stay. Uh, poor people like the people of Nazareth would have camped outside of the city for the most part in tents and such like that. Uh, and so they would have celebrated the whole week. And, and, and things probably worked like clockwork. They've been doing this for years and years, just like clockwork in your home during Christmas. You have these traditions that happen every single year this would have happened uh, for Passover, okay? So we have this close-knit comi- community. Uh, it would have it would not have been abnormal for Jesus to have traveled or been with other families during this time. And you have to remember that Joseph and Mary probably at this point had other children that they were taking care of that were younger than Jesus. Yes, Mary and Joseph, if this is news to you, Mary and Joseph did conceive other children, and Jesus had half-brothers and sisters that he lived with. Uh, and so they had other children that were younger than him that they were probably taken care of at the same time. Okay, uh, so uh, so the story doesn't give us a whole lot of details, uh, but the the reason why uh, there's there's some reason why Mary and Joseph lost track of Jesus and they had no idea where he was and they kind of asked around where Jesus where Jesus and they couldn't find him and so they had to make the track all the way back to Jerusalem to go find him. So just like you and me we would have been freaking out a little bit that our child was lost, right? Parents go like this, right? Okay, for three days. Like, that's kind of a big deal. Now, not like you and me, we didn't lose the Son of God, right? Uh, Which I can understand why they're a little bit... Panicked at this point, okay? So uh, it takes them three days, one day on the way, you know, one day out, one day on the way back, and then on the third day they're looking around for him. Uh, so their, their question for Jesus is not exactly out of left field. Why have you done this to us? Like, I think as a parent, that's a logical question to ask your 12-year-old. Like, I would have been a little bit un, untied as well trying to ask questions about what was happening. And so, what was astonishing to them, it wasn't astonishing that, he was, uh, that they would ask that question. It was astonishing to them that you have this 12-year-old Jesus who is not an elite. Jesus didn't go to private school. Jesus grew up in a poor family, in a poor town, in a carpenter's house. He didn't grow up around the academics. That's not who he was. And so it was a little bit astonishing to them that he is in amongst the temple academics, the elites of the day, asking questions, answering questions, and having this kind of otherworldly knowledge um, to himself. And, so, um, and this, is where, this is where things begin to shift for Joseph and Mary. Where they're starting to see things in Jesus that are significantly different than what they thought. So Jesus simply says to her her when she asks him this question, why are you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And Mary's response is this, clueless adoration. She did not understand what he was saying to her. Maybe blinded a little bit by her anxiety and worry over her son being gone for three days but also there's this, at the same time of being clueless as to what was going on and things not making any sense, she also was in awe of him. What was happening? This is strange. This is not what I'm used to. And so Jesus was beginning to separate himself uh, from, from the pack. And what she was seeing is all those promises, all those things that she had heard during the whole birth narrative when she was, when she was conceived by the Holy Spirit to, to give birth to Jesus and all these wonderful things that angels said to her and the Spirit said to her, all these things were beginning to make even more sense as she sees her son teaching with astonishment to people. And so you have, you have Joseph and Mary and think about it. It's been 12 years since all those things happened. When they see Jesus, they see a normal human boy. They see a boy that's grown up physically just like normal. He has, he has grown mentally just like normal. He, uh, he appreciated the religious laws and traditions just like normal. The rhythms of the community, he would have played. He would have laughed. He would have done all of those things like a normal boy would, except he was one, there's one thing about him that was different, and that he was sinless. He never did anything wrong. Never thought a bad thought. Never disobeyed in any kind of way. So this brings about our, so that's the story, this brings about our kind of deep theological concept that I want us to gather as a church, right? And actually, this is the deep theological concept that you need to know about Jesus. There's not a whole lot more that you need to know about Jesus than this. You need to get this, and it's this, that Jesus was 100% God and 100% human, Jesus was 100% God, 100% human. You might say, that's 200%. That's impossible. Not with Jesus. Okay? And so there is this supernatural nature about Christ where the natural world begins to disappear and you have the supernatural world come come into view. And this is called, and you guys can know this term or not, it doesn't matter, it's called the hypostatic union the hypostatic union, that's what theologians call this, where you have Christ's human nature and his divine nature combined into one, okay? So dig deep with me for a second. Here we go. So let me unpack it just a little bit so we all can gather this. So Christ was completely human in every single way, okay? Jesus looked like a normal person. Now when you watch the movies, Jesus looked like a supermodel, okay? And he's white, and he's got this beautiful flowing hair like he's gonna be in a shampoo commercial. That's not Jesus. He was just a normal human being. He probably had dark skin, brown, brown eyes. He looked Arab, right? Uh, so he's, nor- he's normal height, normal build. Uh, he endured pain, he got tired, he got hungry, Not to be crude, I'm not saying that this is crude, but his body functioned just like our body functions, and he had normal bodily functions just like you and I do. Um, So uh, he endured emotions, happiness, Uh, sadness, frustration, anger, excitement, enthusiasm, all those things. And he was tempted in the same ways that you and I were tempted to sin, except for he did not act upon those urges, and yet he he did not sin. That's the biggest difference, which then flows nicely into his second nature, which is Jesus was completely God as well, or completely divine. He is absolutely holy and without sin, just like his heavenly father is holy, Jesus is holy. Here's one of the fun facts. This is the first time that Jesus speaks in the biblical narrative. I'm sure that he spoke way before this, but they don't give us a whole lot of words. But this is, what, this is the first line or sentence that we hear from Jesus. And it's profound. What does he say? Why have you been searching for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? Okay, here's something interesting about that. This is the first time in all of Scripture that anyone has individually said that God is my Father. Throughout Scripture, we see in the Old Testament that that God is the Father of Israel, kind of this generic Father of of the whole nation. But nowhere does it say in the Old Testament, you don't ever have a character saying that God is my Father. You don't see that. Sometimes they identify God as Abraham's father, but Abraham never actually says that about himself. So this is the first time that anyone in the scripture identifies God directly as their father, and he couldn't be more right. He's saying, God is my father directly. This is a literal situation that he's talking about. So here's some other divine things that Jesus, you have his humanity, so all those things about him, and then you have some divine things throughout his Ministry, we see things like this. Jesus could understand people's thoughts. Jesus could predict the future. He had a supernatural knowledge of events that happened outside of his presence. He wasn't there, but he knew that they happened. He could transcend natural order. He could walk on water, he can control the weather, he can heal disease, he can raise people from the dead, he could create something out of nothing, he could teach with divine authority that no other man have, and, and this one of the, well, the big one that he got in trouble for was, he could forgive sin. That's his divine nature. Now the reason why we need to know this is because when we're walking through this scripture passage, or when we're I'm sorry, when we're walking through the story of Jesus, this beautiful concept helps us to understand his whole ministry. Because things are happening happening simultaneously, and we have to gather both of them together. So as a 12-year-old boy, in this story, you have a boy. He's a normal boy. He's a normal-looking boy, but he's astonishing religious leaders. This is the same person who can still feel sadness over death, as in the story of Lazarus. He's crying. He's weeping over death in his humanity. He's saddened by death. Yet a couple minutes later, he raises Lazarus from the dead. You have, you, have, um, you have simultaneously angry uh, anger with people in the temple over sin, and then in the next moments you have him gathering children tenderly. you have, um, people, you, have you, you have where Jesus could heal wounds, could heal leprosy, can heal all sorts of things, bleeding diseases, all sorts of things. A person that can heal people's skin allowed his skin to be punctured by nails you have you have um, soldiers who are coming to arrest him, yet he does not fear their persecution. He, he totally accepted the Passover praise of his people, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, knowing full well that in four or five days that they would yell, crucify him. So you have this nature going on simultaneously. And this is important for us to understand in our nature, because believers, if you're a believer in this room, you now hold in yourself the nature of Christ. So this is why, because of Christ, our bodies are going to die, but our souls will live eternally because we have attached ourselves with the eternal, the internality of Christ. We, have, we can war with our flesh. This is the reason why we can war with our flesh, but at the same time be completely forgiven. This is the reason why we can be in the world, but not of the world. Because there's this kind of dual nature about Christ, and therefore there's this dual nature of about us, so that's the hypostatic union. Pretty important, and we're going to see this over and over and over again throughout Christ's ministry. I'm going to reference it numerous times as we walk through this series. Okay, so let's get back into the story. Um, now, I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach this as a metaphor, uh, like for our lives, so that we can apply some truths to it. Okay, but let me just sh- let me share with you this before I get a couple emails. This this story. Is not one to one it's not apples to apples, okay So we're going to take a little bit of creative license in this um, because, because there's some contextual things that aren't going to match up perfectly, but I do think that there's some things that we can learn uh, from this story, okay? So the first thing is, is I think that we see in Joseph and Mary the possibility of us as believers wandering from God, that we can wander. Now Again, not one-to-one, because I believe that when, when you are a believer, God never leaves you. So the presence of Christ never leaves you. He's with you. That's a promise that we can stand on, okay? But I also think at the same time, it's possible that we can sometimes walk away from where God wants us to be. That it's entirely possible that we can know what God wants us to do, where God wants us to be, and the things that we're supposed to be doing, and how our heart is supposed to be attached to Christ, and we will have our have our own plan, and we'll go our own way. And we'll start walking and moving forward and going where we want to go, just like Joseph and Mary did, not even concerned whether Jesus is even with us. And so we can wander like that. Have you ever wandered that way? Ever wandered from God? We have to be careful about that. The second thing I want us to see is that Sometimes when we figure out, when we get to that place where, we, we, where we, we know that we've kind of wandered away from our relationship with God, we, we look for him. We say, okay, I've got, I've got some understanding. I, I, know that, um, I know that I've wandered from God. I need to find him again. And so we'll go and we'll try to find him. And a lot of times we'll look in the wrong places. But here's the deal. And Jesus' words ring true didn't you know that I was in my father's house? Jesus is often found exactly where you left him, where you found him in the first place. If you've come to Christ, most likely you came to Christ by reading his word or reading the scripture, knowing full well what God has to say to you. Or you've come to Christ in the community of the church. Or you came to Christ in some kind of mission serving him. Those are all places where God is found. And sometimes when we wander away and we're like, okay, I'm wandering. I'm far from God. I don't feel close to him. And and we're like, okay, I need to find God again. And we try to look around, but why wouldn't he not be back in those places? Why would we not pick up the word of God again and begin to read? That's where he is found. Why don't we join the community of the church? That's where he's found. Why don't we join him on mission? That's where he's found. Let's re-engage with him in those places. Don't you know that I would be about my father's business in my father's house? That's where you will find me. It's not rocket science. The last thing I want us to see is that after a long while of being a Jesus follower, it might be possible, just like Joseph and Mary, to lose the wonder of Christ. You see, when they walked up on him and they asked him this question, where have you been? Why have you done this to us? And he says, well, don't you know that I'd be about my father's business? And they were astonished. They were amazed at what he said. They were amazed by him. To some extent, I think that Joseph and Mary may have lost a little bit of the wonder of the Son of God. So my wife and I uh, have been married for 12 years. Uh, she's the beautiful lady that was singing right here, and uh, she's she's wonderful. She's beautiful. She's smart. Um, she's exciting. She's interesting. All those wonderful things. So uh, love her to death. And um, but I will say this: just like you and your spouse probably have issues, with, like there sometimes where we we don't we're not hitting on the same cylinder. We're not on the same page. That either my sinful, my sinful person or her sinful person decides to just kind of come out and we just rub each other the wrong way. And somehow the fellowship in our home is kind of misguided or it's messed up. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that we're not married anymore. Just because we have those moments doesn't mean that we're, we've lost covenant with each other. So just just go with me on this. Just because you've kind of maybe wandered or there's some tension or there's some problem with your relationship with God doesn't mean that you've lost covenant with him. There's just some tension. Now, here's the deal. I've been married long enough to know that if we come to those places, if we come to a place of tension in our marriage where we're out of fellowship or out of sync with one another, where things aren't jiving the way that they should be, I've been married long enough to know that I... I kind of know exactly how to get things back on track. That there are certain things that I can do, there are certain things that I can say that will get me back in line with my wife. Now, some of those things are pure things that I do out of duty to her, that I serve her in a way that's specific. And sometimes my heart doesn't want to do those things, but I know that I need to so that we can get back on track so that I can find my life a f- best friend again, that we can get back together. But sometimes my heart doesn't want to do that, because, probably because of sin in my own heart. And so there's some duty before delight. Sometimes we do things to get back on track in our relationship, even if we don't want to do it. Here's the next step. I know full well That in order for my heart to then align with her is not just the mechanical things that I have to do. It's awe and amazement and wonder. I know that in order for us to be completely in sync as a married couple, that it has to be, yes, it's the mechanical things that I should be doing as a husband, but it also should be this this mental, uh, this heartfelt emotion of wonder and amazement and awe of my wife. I hope that makes sense. So yes, there is some, if we're out of sync with our Heavenly Father or we're out of sync with Jesus in our relationship, I think there is some things that you can do that are helpful to get you back on track. But I think what is most helpful is if we get back on track with our awe and wonder of Jesus. I think to a certain extent Mary and Joseph kind of lost their astonishment of him. And they gained it back in that moment. They, it says, I don't understand what's happening, but I'm in awe of you. When was the last time that you were in awe of Jesus? Jesus is not just a man to just emulate mechanically. It's not just about, I have to, um, I have to do certain things so that Jesus would just love me in this way. And if I, if I press the right buttons and pull the right triggers, then therefore Jesus will like me and I'll be in right relationship with him. Yes, there are things that we do that are good for us to do to to get back in sync with basically the law of God. But then there's this idea of worship that we stand in awe and amazement of our Savior. When was the last time that you were in awe of Jesus? When you worshiped him? Not just as a mechanical person that you should do what he does, like a bracelet on your wrist. What would Jesus do? It's how do we stand in worship in awe of him? So when we're we're, we're in those places in our kind of prayer closet or just spending time with him in the word, when was the last time you were in awe of him? When was the last time you stood in wonder of Jesus? In this place as we worship together, when was the last time that you gave up all of your securities and all those things and lifted your hands in praise to the Lord? When was the last time? Stand in wonder and awe of God. As we walk through this series, let's do that together as a church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, now a chance to, with clear hearts and a full, uh, full understanding of who you are, that we would now worship you in spirit and in truth. God, that our hearts would be moved back in sync with you. Father, you're good in all things. Uh, thank you for Jesus, that desire to be in his father's house. And thank you for all of these folks who have come today to give up their time to, to say, I want to be in my father's house as well. Father, we, we emulate your son Jesus, but we know that it's more than just, just imitation of him. It's also a heartfelt desire for him and wonder of him. So God, I, hope, I pray that we would be a church that not only serves him just because out of duty or but that it would turn from duty into delight that we would desire to just have our hearts attached to his heart God thank you for um, a good time in your word to worship together as a church Amen Church can I invite you to stand up with us